We'll open your Bibles again to Ephesians chapter 1. I promise we will eventually finish Ephesians chapter 1. We're looking at a bit of a detour that we've taken in looking at the doctrine of election. Paul speaks specifically to the doctrine of predestination and to election in these first verses in Ephesians chapter 1. He's explaining, in fact, the spiritual blessings that we all are enjoying as believers. And the very first exhibit A he gives us for how we can indeed enjoy the blessings, spiritual blessings of God, is election, predestination. This has turned into such a vicious tug-of-war rope from theologians over the centuries, and yet the intention of the Scriptures, every time it talks about predestination and election, is always to give encouragement and hope and confidence and surety and to settle the soul, not to stir it up. Let's uh, rehearse where we have come from and where we have gotten to. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. A large part of pastoral ministry is counseling and discipleship. In fact, one of the key emphases of the New Testament regarding this, this kind of ministry is this. We train our TES students in this almost every day. A minister of God is called to be a pastor who preaches, not a preacher who pastors. If you were to sum up all of the, the uh, passages that talk about preaching in the New Testament, you'd have a handful. If you were to try to sum up all of the passages that accent discipleship and counseling and nurturing of a soul, you would have pages and pages. Said another way, there's way more time in pastoral ministry between Monday morning and Saturday night than there is for the hour or so of worship on Sunday morning. I mention that to say this. Coming up on four decades of ministry in my, in my ministry, I'm so grateful to God that he has sustained me through that. And in four decades of pastoral counseling, one issue has risen to the surface as the most addressed subject I've ever encountered in 40 years of counseling people. Now, I'm, I'm setting aside, you know, couples who come in to talk about their marriages and parents who come in to talk about their, their children and children who come in to talk about their parents and uh, those kind of counseling situations. But if you even summarize those, it typically comes back to this one main issue. It seems like eventually this issue floats to the surface in most every counseling situation I've encountered. I wonder what you would guess it would be. 
I'm not gonna do it, but I would love to have everyone write down what's the most addressed counseling issue in my ministry at least. The issue that has been most raised and addressed in my experience of Christian counseling is this. Am I really saved? Assurance of salvation. Simply put, assurance of salvation is confidence or knowing for sure that you're saved. And it seems like if you drill down, almost everyone comes to a point or cycles through points where they begin asking, am am I really a Christian? You'd be hard-pressed to find a Christian who at some point has not struggled with assurance. Can I tell you that over the years of my life, even while being a pastor, I've had moments where I've said, can I even really be saved and think like this and act like this and behave like this? The problem is that many Christians look for assurance of their salvation, though, in entirely the wrong places. We tend to seek assurance in how we feel or how we feel God feels about us. We look to spiritual growth or the lack thereof. We look at how we, can compa- how we compare to others. We look repeatedly at sins and struggles and the cycles of sin and we, we feel condemned. But I think the place we look mostly that ends up robbing us of assurance is by measuring our assurance of salvation by our own conscience rather than the gospel. Oh, we all can condemn ourselves and condemn ourselves very easily. We can tend to look at our own efforts and see them as insufficient for what we think we need to have as a certain level to be saved. We've talked about this many times before, but the most dangerous word in your wrestling match that you all have with assurance, the most dangerous and damaging and threatening word is the word enough. It could sound like this. Well, I don't pray enough to truly be saved. I don't obey enough to truly be saved. I don't repent enough to truly be saved. I don't evangelize enough to truly be saved. I don't care enough about the things of God to truly be saved. I get this one often. I don't read my Bible enough to truly be saved. Here's the truth. You're right. You're completely right. No one can ever do enough to truly be saved. Here's the reality. You will never do, think about this, you will never do enough to be saved. You can't. It's beyond you. That's because salvation is a work of God, not you. That will be a theme that Paul will accent over and over and over in the book of Ephesians. And he starts the whole discussion of salvation and our spiritual blessings by by banging that drum here in the beginning. Oh, I understand what you're saying. You'll rightly push back and say, hang on, Rick. What about all the commands in Scripture to obey How does that work together with this? Well, let's dive into this together and I hope to bring some clarity to this for you. This might sound a little odd, but like Martin Lloyd-Jones who said that all preaching is group counseling, (laughs) that's what we're doing today. 
So welcome to my couch, welcome to my office, welcome to the, to the Starbucks or, or whatever coffee shop, and let's just pretend that you have had some struggles with your assurance of salvation as we all have if you're a believer. And let's kind of wrestle with this together for a few minutes today, okay? We've taken a detour in our study of Ephesians 1 to look at what we call the doctrines of grace. These have also been explained as the five points of Calvinism, which were the doctrines of grace given defensively against the remonstrants or the Arminians who were attacking the Calvinists in the Dutch Reformation. And as I've said all along, these five points were defensive statements. They were never intended to be articulations of the doctrines of grace as standalone statements. I don't think that the way they're phrased in the TULIP, as we typically call this articulation, this acronym, are the best articulations of that. They need different nuances, and that's what we've tried to do over the last four studies. Let me remind you of what those are. We've looked at five doctrinal convictions that provide security in God's sovereign salvation. And remember, that comes, that's phrased on purpose. These points, these doctrinal um, statements, these doctrines of grace are intended to give us comfort and security, confidence in God's sovereign salvation. We've covered the first four and we'll do the fifth today. Remember, the first was total inability. And by total inability, we're talking about that point of Calvinism called total depravity, which really strikes at the heart of man's fallen state. Man is totally unable to reach out to God in his dead state, Ephesians 2.1, and respond as a dead man to the life of God. And so he opens the heart to believe. Secondly, we looked at electing choice known as unconditional election, or God's prerogative to save. God is the one who, because of his grace and love and mercy, reaches down to save sinners who would have otherwise never been saved. Then we looked at definite atonement, or particular redemption, also known as limited atonement, I'm not a fan of the term limited atonement because it makes Christ's death sound limited in some, some fashion and Christ's death was exponentially, infinitely valuable. So we talked about particular redemption, meaning that if Christ died for everyone, then everyone would be saved. And if Christ's atonement is unlimited in the sense that it extends to those in hell, then we have a lot of theological problems. So it's applied to those who are predestined. We looked for some time at that. Then we looked at overwhelming grace, probably one of my favorite doctrines in all of Scripture. God's loving deliverance, also known as irresistible grace, that God's gracious disposition overwhelms our proclivity to rebel against God and to sin against God and to reject God and saves us. Which brings us finally to enduring faith, which means God's preservation of believers. It's also known as, in the five points of Calvinism, perseverance of the saints. So we come today to perseverance of the saints, which I prefer to call enduring faith. Now, as with the other doctrines of grace, this one also suffers from a lack of clarity by the way it's phrased. The term perseverance of the saints can be 
perilously misleading. Think about it. Perseverance of the saints, which actually does the opposite of what the other four points point to, which is it puts all of the value, all of the effort on the back of the saint. The reason it sounds like perseverance is, the reason I should say, is it sounds like perseverance is something that we do, we can do. It's something that's up to us to maintain. Yes, saints do persevere in the faith. Those who have been predestined and called by God have experienced the new birth by the power of the Holy Spirit. All who are truly saved will endure till the end. But think about the nuance here. They do not persevere because of their own genius, ingenuity, effort. They, we, continue or persevere or endure in the faith because we have been preserved by God. God is the one who preserves. God is the one who causes us to persevere. Some suggest that a better term might be preservation of the saints. R.C. Sproul likes that term best. And he says this is a better term, quote, because the process by which we are kept in a state of grace is something that is accomplished by God. I think he's right. So what I want to do is break this topic down into four subcategories or four subpoints. Let's look first of all at this. Eternal life is truly eternal life. I know that sounds obvious and and a little bit self-evident, but it's worth your thought. Eternal life is eternal life, truly eternal life. The very term eternal life says something about our enduring faith. God doesn't offer us. Well, just think about this. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have hope for life. Is that what it says? That whoever believes in him shall not perish but might have eternal life. Is that what it says? That whoever believes in him will not perish but we're praying that they make it to the end life. No, no. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but they will have eternal life. Not a possibility, not a hopefulness, not an if. It doesn't even say that they will have potentially eternal life. How secure is this eternal life? We're going to be turning to a lot of passages. You're welcome to try to follow along, or you can just write them down. This will be on the website tomorrow if you want to just get these passages later as well. How secure is eternal life? Philippians 1, verse 6, Paul said, I, think about this, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it or perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's powerful. Every work of salvation that God starts, he will finish. And those who defect from the faith, we'll look at that in a moment, are those who never had faith. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 
Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, complete you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So eternal life really is eternal life. God doesn't give eternal life and then later say, ah, you forfeited it. Ah, you blew it. Ah, you lost it. What does eternal mean? Drum roll, eternal. So when you have eternal life, it is life everlasting. That's a great promise. And it's the place we have to start. Eternal life is truly eternal life. Not a possibility life, not a maybe life, not a hopeful life, not a see if you can make it life. It is eternal life. Having said that, though, it's important, secondly, to remember this. Apostasy is real and possible. Apostasy is real and possible. Though eternal life is truly eternal, there exists the very real possibility of apostasy. What is apostasy? It's simply this, turning away from the Christian faith. Turning away from the Christian faith. Now, I know what you're thinking. That seems a contradiction to to the first point. Just stick with me for a minute, okay? 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. John says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. In John's own ministry, the best friend of the Lord Jesus Christ, the pastor, John saw people leave the faith. But his conclusion wasn't that they lost their salvation. His conclusion is that they were not ever truly, really a Christian. Probably the most stinging explanation of this reality is from the words and the lips of our Lord in Matthew chapter 7. This is a frightening text for me, frankly. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Stop right there. So Jesus takes us, takes the camera and points it toward heaven. And he says, there will be a time when everyone shows up before me to account for what they've done with the gospel. And he says, not everyone who gets all the way to the judgment will enter into heaven. These people are not only deceived, they are self-deceived. So self-deceived, they get to the judgment and they call Jesus Lord twice. Lord, Lord. And then they give the resume. Many will say to me on that day, Matthew 7, 22, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, cast out demons. And in your name, perform many miracles. Didn't we do things that looked like ministry? Weren't we faithful in ways that would have shown the world that we were faithful? And Jesus says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, 
you who practice lawlessness. Do you understand understand the horror of this moment? There are people so self-deceived and having the wrong confidence in what they've done in their Christian, in quotation marks, experience that they get all the way to the judgment thinking they're going into heaven and thrown into hell from the very gate of heaven. It's incredible. Why? You who practice lawlessness. They had a resume that looked like faithfulness, but in their heart they were practicing lawlessness. They weren't obeying Christ. Listen, this shouldn't surprise us. Jesus had a Judas. Paul had a Demas. John had a Diotrephes. There were people under the very best influences of Christianity, including the Lord himself, who rejected, who fell away. John 6 says there were many who were following Jesus who after he taught them the heavy doses of theology, especially the sovereignty of God, they followed him no more. There are people that I have known personally, famous and not famous, who have turned away from Christ after years of apparent solid ministry. At least they were honest enough to claim their apostasy. Some, though, convince themselves wrongly so that they know Christ, that they love Christ, that they obey Christ, only to get to the very end of their their journey and see that they have been rejected because their faith wasn't real. This is the saddest and most serious thing imaginable. Which is why Peter tells his readers, be sure of your election. That's not telling us to make sure that God has elected us. It's saying make sure that if you believe that you're following him and obeying him. We'll see that more specifically in our next subpoint, perfection is unreal and impossible. <laughs> we have to remember that. There's a little bit of a progression here. Eternal life is truly eternal. Apostasy is real and possible, but equally true is that perfection is unreal and impossible. Well, you must be careful here. It will be easy to slip into a form of perfectionism based on that second subpoint. Well, if, if any kind of apostasy is, is, is damaging, is, is uh, uh, rendering our souls unfit for heaven, then I, I guess I should be all in and perfect. No, 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 that's not at all the case. The Bible gives no allowance for a sinless Christian. Can we just swallow that pill? <laughs> the Bible gives no allowance for a sinless Christian. Every believer will struggle with sin until the day you die. Let me say it another way. There is progress over sin. I think of my own life. I don't struggle with some of the same outward, overt sins that I did when I was 18 years old, 20 years old, 25 years old. I struggle with far deeper sins now than I ever have before. The longer I'm a Christian, the more I grow as a Christian, the, 
I see deeper and blacker sin in my heart than I ever saw before, but I also see that God has given me victory over patterns and cycles and uh, 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 um, the uh, evidences of sin over my life. Not perfectly. No, not perfectly, but progressively. The Bible gives no allowance for a sinless Christian. There is no concept of a believer who achieves perfection in this life contra the extreme Wesleyanism that is taught, which you can have absolute sanctification. I'm not gonna take the time to go on that, but there is a doctrine that says you can be sanctified enough to become perfect in this life. Now, to understand this better, I'd like you to flip over for a moment to 1 John because I want you to see this. 1 John chapter one, because the balance of this from the pen of, of John is so helpful. He hits all of the important themes in this doctrine in just a small, simple space. 1 John chapter one. Now, remember, 1 John is written predominantly to give us assurance. But listen to the balance of this. First John, we're going to pick it up in verse 6 of chapter 1. John says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk, live in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Whoa, stop right there. If you don't keep reading, you can be tempted to say, Wow, unless I live a perfect life, I- I- I'm not truly a believer. Verse seven, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say, verse eight, if we say that we have no sin, we've achieved perfectionism, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. That is a dangerous warning to those who say they can achieve perfectionism in this life. John says, if you say that, you're proving that you don't even know the Savior. If we confess our sins, which he's assuming are there, verse 9, he is faithful, he is righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now we're in chapter two. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Will you please cling to that verse? If anyone sins, we have an advocate about our sins with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Why? He himself is the payment or propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We studied that when we looked at particular redemption. Verses three to six. This is the key, okay? I cannot underline this high, uh, strongly enough. By this, we know, there's confidence, there's assurance. By this, we know that we have come to know him. Did you hear that? Whatever John says next is really important. 
By this, by what I'm about to say, we know that we are Christians, that we've come to know him. If, conditional clause, if we keep his commandments. Now, someone might say, whoa, and that means I have to keep all his commandments. Did you read the first chapter? We're going to sin. We're going to blow. We're going to be insufficient in our obedience. But we have an advocate for those sins. Then he gives an illustration. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep, this is a present active verb, stay in the state of keeping, his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been completed or perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk, live in the same manner as Jesus walked. So how do you know that you're a believer? You obey God. You want to obey Christ. You want to keep his commands. Do you keep them always perfectly? No. What's the solution to that? We have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Said another way, the issue is not being perfect. The issue is not being um, unassailable with respect to your sanctification or your sin. The issue is, are you soft and sorry when you sin? Perfection is unreal. Perfection is impossible. But being soft about our imperfections is serious. It's a mandate. Do you care when you don't care? Do you care when you sin? Do you care when you blow it? If we do, let me give you good news. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive them and cleanse us from how much? How much? How much? All unrighteousness. You cannot out sin God's grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. How much of our sin does it cover? Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. All sufficient, ever satisfying grace. Which brings us to really what this all points to, our fourth little subpoint. God is the keeper of our salvation. God is the keeper of our salvation. John 10, would you turn over to John 10 for a moment? John chapter 10, beginning in verse 22. For those who teach that you can lose your salvation, this is, is not an easy verse to answer. For those of us who believe that once you're saved, you're always saved, this is a blessed hope. This is Jesus speaking. John 10, verse 22. At the time of the Feast of the Dedication took place, at that time, the Feast of the Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews gathered around him and were saying to him, this is, this is amazing. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you. 
anyone who says Jesus didn't claim to be the Messiah didn't read this verse. I've told you over and over, but you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. You haven't been chosen. My sheep, hear my voice. How can you tell if you're elect? How can you tell if you're predestined? You believe, you listen to the voice of Jesus, you want to follow him. And I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them that they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That means all true believers are held securely in the hand of Jesus. But it goes on. My father, verse 29, who has given them to me, remember all believers are a love gift from the father to the son, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Do you see those two hands? Isn't that incredible? How secure is salvation? You're held by the hand of Jesus. You're held by the hand of God the Father. That sounds pretty secure to me. And you can say that because verse 30, I and the Father are the same, one God. There's a Trinitarian affirmation. He will hold us fast. That phrase, he will hold me fast, comes from John 10. He holds us in his hand. Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God and Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. Okay, can you look up just for a second? Eye contact, ready? Just for a second. Folks, if you, you, if you could lose your salvation, you would. No question. If it were up to you, you would be hopeless. If you could lose it, you would lose it. But you can't if it's real. Look for a moment, just one of the most difficult passages for some theologians in the Bible, I don't think is as difficult. 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is in that theme, this little hymn that was probably sung that he gives the lyrics to. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Because he talks about the difference between denial and faithlessness. It's really interesting. Um, where to pick it up. For this reason, 2 Timothy 2.10, he goes to the issue of election. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are what? Chosen. So that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. It is a trustworthy statement. Ah, oh, listen to this. If we die with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. That's exactly what Jesus said. You've denied me in your lawlessness. You've denied me. You've apostatized. But if we are faithless, 
He remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. I don't think that faithlessness means that you, you have no faith. I think it means you're weak. You have moments of difficulty because it's contrasted with the, word, with the, uh, the, the idea of denial in the previous verse. He says whatever, whatever denial is is contrasted with that which is faithless. Folks, have you had faithless moments in your life? If you're honest, you'll say yes. And if you're questioning, trust it on the words of an old gray man, you will have those days coming. I know this is a bit of a Bible study, but 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. There's the first cause of salvation being God himself through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable. There's eternal, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. It is eternal life who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Did you hear that? Listen, weary sinner struggling with assurance, you are protected, protected by the power of God. Even if your faith is small, even if in the parable of the vineyard, your, your fruit is a shriveled up grape on the last part of the vine. In this you greatly rejoice that even though for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor of the, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you're not living by feelings, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory. Here it is, verse 9. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. The writer to the Hebrews in chapter 7, verse 25 says, Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Can I say that again? He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, Hebrews 7, 25, since he always lives to make intercession for them. If you're truly a believer, no matter how much you struggle, Jesus is praying for you through the struggle. And then the verse we always come back to with assurance of salvation. Let this saturate your doubting soul. Paul said, Romans 8, 38, he says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We sing a rephrasing of that all the time. And when you sing it in the future, will you remember this passage? The Getty song on Christ alone. We love to sing. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever 
pluck me from what? His hand till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ I stand. Now backing up from this doctrine, I recognize the, the balance of, of it as, as, as a shepherd, as a pastor, as a friend, as a counselor. There's an old saying that was taken from a literature review actually and then pastors adopted it. I think it's a very apropos phrase that our job as ministers is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. There's a lot of truth to that. You comfort the afflicted and you afflict the comfortable. Let's put that in the context of this, this doctrine. We comfort the afflicted if you have a love for Christ, if you're soft to your sin, if you feel condemned, if you're scared and you wonder, am I truly a Christian but you want to be? It is a very unlikely event that someone who desperately wants to be a child of God, who is soft about their sin, but who doubts that relationship, it's very doubtful that they are not a child of God. Unbelievers don't care to ask those questions. But the phrase also says, not only to comfort the afflicted, but to afflict the comfortable. If you think I walked the aisle, I prayed the prayer, I went to camp, I signed the card, I I threw my pine cone in the fire at camp, whatever you've done to, to be a Christian, and that happened a long time ago, and now I'm saved, fire insurance for life. Friend, don't be comforted in that. Do you love Jesus Christ? Is he important to you? There's an old saying in Reformed theology about the perseverance of the saints, and it goes like this. If you have it, that is, if you have genuine faith and are in a state of saving grace, if you have saving faith, you will never lose it. But if you lose it, you never had it. Remember, our enduring faith does not rest on our power and strength. You must be faithful, but it's not up to you. That's good news. Every believer relapses into sin and sinful habits during their sanctification process. I love R.C. Sproul's words again. True Christians can have radical and serious falls, but never total and final falls from grace. We know this very simply by comparing Judas and Peter, who within hours of each other both fell from their understanding of grace. Peter denied Christ three times, but came back to the Lord because his faith was real. Judas denied Christ and walked away to suicide because he truly denied him. David in the Old Testament fell over and over and over in sin, but he was a man after God's own heart. 1 John 5. This is the testimony, verse 11, 
that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. So, friends, weary, doubting saints, be encouraged that if you truly believe and if you want to be faithful, he will indeed hold you and hold you fast.